All right, well, take your Bibles and look with me at Luke's Gospel, this time chapter 12, Luke chapter 12. And of course, it's a new chapter in Luke's Gospel, but not necessarily a new subject. In fact, it reinforces what we've been noticing this last several weeks in our study, and that is that as Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem, the hostility is increasing. And in particular, he, he takes a different approach, you remember when he went to this brunch, uh, because he was sitting with Pharisees and he was sitting with a a group of uh, experts in Old Testament law. And so there were the religious elite of Israel. And they had invited him, but they had just previously accused him of being demonic. And so things are ramping up to the point where he's got to say something in a different manner. It used to be that, that he would interact with Israel's leaders and taking the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first, and, and just noting their ongoing confusion, let alone the growing rejection of him, their, their rejection of his authority and the rejection of him being God in human flesh is now at its zenith. And so he now begins to take a bit of a different approach. And though he's invited to a meal here, he's going to treat it different than others he had been invited to. In fact, you remember Jesus has always been tender and compassionate to the broken and shattered heart someone downtrodden or oppressed, someone needy, someone maimed, someone with a physical disease who's been left out to society, or, or those who from a life of sin have just been ruined. He reached out with soft heart and steady hand, giving them the truth and relieving their suffering as an example of his power. But not so with the religious elite of Israel. False religion received the most scathing rebukes from Christ, and for good reason. In this particular meal, you know, Jesus then leveled some some statements at the Pharisees and the Old Testament experts in the law there in that breakfast because it was deserved. Their hypocrisy was acute. It was obvious. And so he had to say something, and what he said raised the level of hostility as anyone would understand. And you notice in verse 53 at the end of chapter 11, when Jesus left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. You can hardly believe Jesus made it out of there since at the beginning of his ministry, when he spoke of Israel being the ones against whom God the Father would come, they tried to throw him off a cliff in his own hometown. Here, nearing the end of his ministry, he says things with such force, apparently, that that they were willing to go underground with their attempts to plot against him. They're taking it underground. I like the ESV translation here because it catches some of the force of this language. It isn't merely, as the NAS says, that they were questioning him closely. Actually, they were pressing against him to provoke him to say something into which then they could could bring a charge. They were lying in wait, the ESV says. That's a better translation. So they're going underground. They're plotting behind the scenes. They're trying to to, to bring up all of these kinds of ways to press him and provoke him to say something that they might catch him. Cross-examine is the Christian standard version. That that would be an accurate translation. This is a hard cross-examination everything he says, everywhere he goes, everything he teaches. They were vehemently coming against him, the new King James says, in order to accuse him. This is their motive. You see, they assumed, as anyone would who is filled with the boastful pride of life, they assumed that if they could take their plotting to the back room, then they would have the upper hand. They could plot against him and he wouldn't know it. And so they would conspire behind closed doors and they would draw up their schemes against Jesus. They had already a pretty sophisticated secret network of those in villages and towns and in and around Jerusalem that would work with them. Spies in low places, if you will. That's right, the religious elite, the false religion. They they pretended to be righteous, but they wore a mask, as we've been seeing. And in their hypocrisy, they had connections all over the lowbrow elements of society. And they loved it so. And they went after those kinds of relationships. And so here they're hatching their wicked plans in the the dark shadows, thinking that no one is the wiser. But as all fools, 
they, they weren't reading the Old Testament in which they were experts. They weren't reading it closely enough. Job 5.13, the oldest book in the Old Testament, says that it is God who captures the wise in their own shrewdness. Just when they're developing a plan, he pulls the rug out from underneath them. Why? Because the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted by God. And of course, you know that Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3 brings that Job 5.13 passage into his present context and says, if you really want to be wise, then don't think that you're shrewd and can plan behind God's back or be a hypocrite or hide things because you cannot. He catches the wise in their reasoning and the reasoning of human beings is foolish, so says Psalm 94.11, which Paul again quotes. The thoughts of man are a mere breath, the psalmist said. What is the sin of the Pharisees then? What is this? Where does the hypocrisy find its roots? Beloved, hypocrisy is ultimately rooted in the absence of a fear of God. In the absence of a fear of God. And in Luke 12, Jesus deals with this absolute priority of the fear of God in the believer's life. It is the highest priority of the believer's life as a foundation for his life. To have a proper fear of God. Now, what comes to our mind as believers right away is 1 John 4, 8. Wait a minute. Perfect love in the gospel casts out fear because fear involves punishment and I'm not going to be personally condemned. That's true. The perfect, forgiving love of Jesus Christ swallows up all fear of being personally judged by the Creator. That is true. Someone might also be saying, well, wait a minute. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, you'd be correct. You're not going to be personally condemned. If you are in Christ, your sins have been forgiven, your guilt is taken away, your sins as far as the east is from the west will never be held against you. There's no personal condemnation for those who are under grace. That's true. But if that's where the subject of fear ended then why is there so much talk of fearing God all over the Old Testament and then right on seamlessly into the New Covenant? The Old Testament and into the New Covenant, there are all kinds of statements that indicate that while at the same time you have no fear of personal condemnation, there is a fear of God that exists in the believer, even is heightened in the believer. Even the teaching of Jesus in this passage in verse 5 of Luke 12. Notice he says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Why is Jesus already telling redeemed people, disciples no less, verse 1 says, why is he telling the redeemed disciples that they should fear him who can and will bring eternal judgment? Well, it's because as true believers, we who know God through his word, we who know the truth about our forgiveness and, and no longer have any condemnation coming our way, we do not lose the fear of God. We only come to understand and practice it in a whole new dynamic. The fear of God in the hearts of God's people is all over the Old Testament and the New Covenant because we don't lose it, we begin to practice it in a whole new dynamic. The fear of God is foundational to some things in the Christian life. First of all, it is foundational to our understanding of who we are in relationship to the Creator as human beings. A proper fear of God, as you understand your finiteness, your smallness, your, your inability to sustain your own life, this is all foundational to how a creature views the creator. He's the sustainer. Life comes from him. He's the one that gives you breath and allows your heart to take another bead and allows your brain to send electrical impulses throughout your physiology. God didn't merely begin the process and let it roll on. The Bible says he sustains you in every moment. All the atoms, all the molecular structure in our universe is sustained by Christ every moment. If he removes breath from you in a moment, which he can as sovereign God, it would be over. No matter what your physiology was doing moments before. So a fear of God, a proper fear of God, a biblical one, which we'll talk about, is essential to understanding our relationship to the creator. Secondly, it's foundational as a motivation for living for his glory. It isn't 
like the hyper grace movement says that, oh, we're only to be motivated by a, a, a view of what the love of God is. It's true we're motivated by the love of God, but not exclusively the love of God. And the movements today, some have suggested that, that somehow there are to be always in your motivation some sort of happy, glad feelings that go on in your life as, as the only legitimate measure of whether you've obeyed Christ. Really? We're going to find out that the fear of God, a proper fear of God, is essential to your growing Christian life, to your faithfulness in the Christian life. It's absolutely essential. And we'll also understand that from this text in the next couple of weeks that a fear of God, a proper fear of God, a biblical fear of God is foundational to our joy and our comfort. Our practical joy and comfort. What does the Bible have to say to us about this principle of the fear of God? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to give you an introduction of the two ways we're to fear God by going back to the Old Testament and New Testament a little bit this morning. And then at the end... I'm going to sort of outline for you how this section is going to go, and then we'll tackle it next time. There are five reasons in this text to fear God, and Jesus is going to give them to us. But let's just sort of map out an intro here a little bit. If you're keeping an outline, you might just write down that we must fear God, not man. That's your first principle. Christians must fear God, not man. Now, the Proverbs, being the wisdom literature, kind of give us the ABCs on this, right? Proverbs 1-7. This is the ABCs, as Dr. Al Martin calls it, of the fear of God. The fear of God or the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. It's where it all begins. It's foundational. The fear of God or the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. If you, as a human being, think you know something, uh, you, you know nothing unless you begin with an understanding of your relationship with the creator and you're the creature. So that is to say you're finite, you're limited, as we said, and you're dependent. You need to be sustained. And he's the one that does the sustaining by his sovereign hand. You go out that door, if it is your day to go meet your creator, there is nothing that can thwart that. Not your plans, not your schemes, not your backdoor conspiracies, not your friends, not anything on the earth. It's your day. It's your time. And by the way, the psalmist says, all our days are numbered. And Psalm 139 says, before there was even one of them, they're ordered, mapped out, ordained. So that alone should give us a sense of trepidation and awe that God has ordered our days and ordained those things. And then Psalm 19, which talks about revelation itself. You know Psalm 19 has that twofold uh, sort of look at revelation. First, natural revelation, right? The sun runs its course and day to day and night to night pours forth this speech about this great God when you look at creation. And then the psalmist transitions to special revelation. God revealing himself in his word. And in verse 9 of Psalm 19, this is what the word of God, the special revelation says of itself. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So in a list of adjectives describing God's word, commandments, statutes, those principles or precepts are also called the fear of the Lord. That is to say, whatever God says, it is to be revered. It is to be honored. Whatever word comes out of his mouth, whatever truth comes to mankind, there is in it, embedded in it, a foundational sense in which we must fear it. We must look to it. We must be in awe of it. Because God's word is established, it's immovable. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament a little bit, and I'll take you to Deuteronomy 4 in a moment, but just to remind you, all the way back at the patriarchs, fear of God was already there, foundational. In Abraham... Uh, when, when he went down to Egypt because of the famine, and you remember he lied to the pagan king, Bibelach, he, he lied to him and said, Sarah's my sister. It's very interesting, the backhanded way that he talks about the fear of God and what his motives were. Now, it was foolish to do that, and it ended up causing him a lot of problems because when the king sent him back out of Egypt, he sent him with a bunch of treasure and some servants, and one of which was Hagar, which, as you know, later in Genesis 16 became a major, major problem. So he collected some baggage when he went down there in his foolish choice. It wasn't good to do that. But Abraham himself says in Genesis 20, verse 11, to the king, 
Here's why I did what I did. Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place and they're going to kill me because she's my wife. And so backhandedly, he's admitting that if you're a pagan, you do not understand your relationship with your creator. You already have this assumption that you're alone in the universe, autonomous, and you don't have a proper fear of God. That's why you're pagan. That's an amazing admission. You get a little further in Israel's life, you get to Exodus 20 when they've come out of the land and they're into Mount Sinai, they're at the base and the earthquakes are happening and the mountain is covered with smoke and they're frightened out of their wits. And lightning and thunder is going on all around them in forceful wave after wave of it. They said, Moses, you talk to us. We cannot stand the thought of facing Almighty God. And Moses said, no, listen. And this is interesting. He puts them side by side. He says, don't be afraid. What does that mean? We're, we're, we got the presence of God coming out all over the place. The power of God shaking the ground below us. If we touch the mountain or even touch the animals around the mountain, we're going to die. The animals touch the mountain. They're going to die. What do you mean? Don't be afraid. He's saying, look, you're God's people. I'm your mediator. Don't be afraid of personal judgment. But Exodus 20 verse 20, he says, for God has brought you here in order to test you and in order that you may fear him, that your fear of him would remain. So side by side, you have this concept. Don't be afraid of personal condemnation if you are God's child, but at the same time, fear him, a proper fear, a proper reverence, a proper holy dread, because he could judge and doesn't. What was the net effect? Moses said, the net effect is that if you fear him like that, you will not sin. God has brought you here to test you. Don't be afraid of personal condemnation, but he's brought you here to test you so that you'll learn to fear him properly that you may not sin. So clearly there's a kind of fear of God that is proper in its dread of who God is that is a deterrent to sin. And it can coexist with, with not fearing judgment on a personal level. That's because the grace of our salvation... The grace of our salvation, which does protect us from the wrath to come, teaches us to fear God in the truest biblical sense. So, beloved, this idea that because you're in grace and because you're saved by grace and you don't, and perfect love has cast out fear of judgment of you personally, that somehow there is no sense in which the Christian has a proper fear of God, that is mistaken thinking. Now, look back at Deuteronomy 4 for a moment. I'm just going to carry through a few texts that will be important for you as we come into this little section in Luke 12 in the study in the weeks ahead. Deuteronomy chapter 4, you know, they get in the, they're about to head in and they reiterate the Ten Commandments. They're being given direction here. And in verse 5, In verse 5, Moses says, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you're entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? Now look at verse 9. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Did you catch that? That they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach that same fear of God to their children. And listen, when, when corruption is described in Scripture, when man's fallen condition is described, 
In the book of Romans, Paul will pull from the Old Testament to describe the corruption of man in Romans chapter 3. That great statement in Psalm 36, 1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Listen, that is how we're born. We're born in a state where we're the opposite of what we're to be in Christ and in redemption. We're born with no fear of God before our eyes. And that is, in Romans 3, at the end of Paul's rap sheet on corruption, no fear of God. So clearly, when you get redeemed, there's a new uh, sense of this fear, which I'll describe in, in a moment, a new fear of God, a new dynamic at who God is and our understanding of our relationship with him and what motivates us as a deterrent from sin and, and even in that, a practical joy and comfort that comes from knowing that he could judge and he hasn't. The whole accusation leveled against Job, interestingly enough, by Satan was not that, not that the fear of God was bad or that Job was uh, a legalist and that God just thought he was a guy of grace. No, the accusation that Satan made against Job was, oh, I know he fears you, but his motives are disingenuous. He fears you because you keep him from tests that would crush his fear. So even, even Satan himself knows that he cannot touch someone who fears God properly cannot touch them. In the context of the gospel, in the Old Testament, Psalm 67, verse 7, says that the entire purpose of salvation is that so that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Listen, when the gospel goes out, it produces not just an understanding of grace and forgiveness and salvation from personal condemnation, but it also puts within the heart a new dynamic of fearing God properly. By the way, this was the messianic vision for Israel. Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, that when the Messiah comes, he is going to come with a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of the fear of the Lord and put it within his people. In fact, look at Jeremiah 32. What a great passage because right here in the dead center in this text, Jeremiah 32, a passage about the new covenant and what God is going to do with the hearts of his people you have this same statement. Jeremiah 32, verse 38. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart. There it is. That's the new covenant. In Christ, by the Spirit, one heart, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. I'll not turn away from, from them to do them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they'll not turn away from me. That's what it has been all about. The fear of God keeps you from departing from God. If it's a proper fear... You come into the New Testament and you see already when, when the promise of the incarnation is there, you see Mary in Luke 1. She's just been told about the promise. What does she sing in Luke chapter 1? Just taking ourselves back now to the New Testament. In Luke 1, she is with Elizabeth. What does she say in this great song? Luke 1, 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And here she quotes Psalm 103, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. She fears God with a proper fear. In the early church, when the church was flourishing, in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, the earliest believers were under grace. They did not believe they were condemned personally. They knew the gospel influence. They knew the forgiveness of sin, but it says there that the flourishing of the church, the strength of the church, the multiplying gospel influence of the church came because they were, quote, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The two go hand in hand. We're commanded, by the way, to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. 2 Corinthians 7.1 perfecting holiness 
in the fear of God. Our holiness and our striving is empowered by the Spirit of God. It is done by the gracious power of God given to us in the gospel. And in our striving, the Lord, by His Spirit, turns those works of striving into these gracious works rooted and grounded in our understanding of who we are before our Creator, rooted and grounded in what it means to see the cross rightly and know that He could have judged and know that He didn't judge, producing in us a proper fear. And you know, probably the classic text often quoted about how we're to operate in the Christian life is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. You know it well. The Apostle Paul says to work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. You say, well, that's reverence and awe. It's true. It is reverence and awe. But there are two dimensions to fear, and I want to I want to talk about this before we go back and just briefly introduce Luke 12 and our time will be gone. There is, there is in this proper fear of God two aspects to it. Two aspects to it. And you might be surprised to note that the first aspect isn't merely reverence. It is a, 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 a holy dread of who God is. It is a holy dread of who God is. Some uh, commentators will even use the word terror to speak of this dread. But ultimately, whatever you call it, it is rooted in holiness. It is rooted in in a right understanding of God and the fact that he could judge and didn't and will indeed judge unbelievers. There is in, in a Christian a right understanding of judgment because of the cross and the wrath of God that was poured down on Christ and that anyone who rejects it will face God's full wrath in the end. There is a holy dread that comes over the heart of a believer. That's right. People who want to say today that the only motivation for obedience is some sense of the love of God or some happy gladness coming from knowing God's grace. I'm not, I'm not against those things. They are a part of the Christian heart. They, they are going to have a lot of trouble, however, with what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 when he says, look, if you call him father and you know that he judges impartially, it says it right in the text, if you call him father, that is to say, if you have an intimate relationship with God the Father and yet you know that by calling him father, you also know that his character is impartial and that he will judge impartially. That is to say, no leniency because you happen to feel sorry for yourself. If you are not in Christ, he is an impartial judge and will judge you. If you're in Christ, he judged Christ on your behalf. And Peter even says, as a new covenant believer, if you call him father, then you ought to conduct your present current Christian life in fear, he says. In fear. So how do you know it's a holy dread? Well, in the first church discipline case in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, you had Ananias and Sapphira, and they played the hypocrite. They were just like what Jesus is warning about in Luke 12. They They had a mask on. Somewhere behind the scenes, in the secret of their heart, they had prayed to God in the Holy Spirit that they were going to sacrifice something for God. And at a time when the church was brand new, it was fledgling, integrity was essential, the life of God's people was was to be pure, there couldn't be any leaven that could spread as Jesus warns in Luke 12. At a time when purity was so essential as an example, here were two people who'd made some plot in their heart to promise something on the outside and hold it back on the inside. And Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And what happened? God takes them just like that. He took them both on the spot. And their bodies were carried out. And Acts chapter 5 verse 11 says this, And great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. That's interesting. Great fear. Here, these are believers. It came upon the church. It wasn't fear of personal condemnation. You wouldn't have been sitting there as Ananias and Sapphira's lives have been taken and in the chastening and discipline case, they're taken home 
wherever. They're, they're taken to the Lord. That's it. They lied to the Holy Spirit. It's a sin, a grave sin. You wouldn't have been sitting there saying, uh-oh, I could lose my salvation. Uh-oh, I'm not under grace. Uh-oh, I'm under law. Uh-oh, I have to earn my righteousness. Uh-oh, I'm under God's personal condemnation. No, but you would have been sitting there saying, I have a right understanding of who I am before God and there is a holy dread that rises up in me at knowing that he could judge me and he's an impartial judge and I should conduct myself in fear and I shouldn't imagine I could plot secret things and get away with it. I shouldn't imagine that things are hidden from God. Nothing is hidden from God as we'll see. I shouldn't live my Christian life as though there is no holy dread that's right and good. At, at who God is. I mean, evangelicalism has become kind of this sloppy, sappy sort of, you know, thing where, you know, hey, we're all in grace. Oh, Christianity's messy. Oh, and we're just, we're just casual about all that. There's no sense in which the scriptures teach that because you're not personally condemned that somehow fear of God and reverence and awe and even a holy dread for who he is as the creator shouldn't motivate you should motivate us. Judgment motivates the believer. Did you know that? See, but I'm not going to be judged. Yes, but did you know that Peter says in 2 Peter 3 that since God is going to judge the world with intense heat and burn it up and he's reserved it for the fire of his judgment, since that's true, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, then what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Wow, I'm to be motivated in my conduct and godliness by judgment, even though I'm never going to be judged. And, and you can see that, can't you? Because if I think about the judgment of the world, then I think God could have judged me. And then when I think about the fact that he's not going to judge me, I have to think, well, that's the sovereign grace of God that allows me in and keeps other people out. That is frightening. I mean, that's like how terrifying it was to see Jesus walking on the water and then he stops the storm and Jesus is in the boat and they're more frightened than, than they were at the storm. Why? Because God's power is on display and they're in the presence of Almighty God. There's a holy dread. There's a holy dread, beloved, when you think about the cross because my guilt held Jesus there and God could have judged me and should have judged me and he didn't. So your mind goes from, from a proper understanding of judgment to where judgment fell on our behalf. Then it goes from there to the grace of God and it goes from there to my life and how I'm living it. And I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be leaven. I don't want to wear a mask. That's where it goes. I want to live in fear. I, not a fear of my personal condemnation, but a, fear of the God of the universe who, who takes people and judges them and frees me and liberates me. How can I walk through my day without a dread because he is judge? He's not my personal judge, but he is judge. Israel rightly experienced the sense of dread that God is the judge and he has holy character to see sin and judge it and he has the power to, and sovereign majesty to bring his authority down upon it. And every time they saw him judge their enemies, it should have produced in them a holy fear. Did you know when you see visions of the fear of God in heaven, Revelation 15, Revelation 19, you know what they're singing about? The fear of God. Revelation 15, they sang the song of Moses, the slave of God and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, Revelation 15, 3 and 4. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you? Who on the earth shall not fear God like that? What a fool. Later in chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, he will say that very thing. Oh, there you are, stocking up your money, stocking up your barns, building new barns. You fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And then what you, will you do having gained the whole world, but you lose your soul? Again, it's just the theme of fear just keeps threading its way through these narratives where Christ was speaking to that very issue. 
Revelation 19, 4 and 5, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, alleluia. And then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you, his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. So we fear God in that first way. We fear God with dread because he is judged. It's not dread of our personal condemnation, but it is dread that he is who he is. I want people to see the love of Christ and the grace of Christ, but I want them to, in my eyes, but I want them to see it in context. How can I understand the love of Christ and the grace of Christ if I don't understand the dread that I should have as a creature who's fallen and that he could judge me? We have turned the cross into an unnecessary humanitarian act on the earth alone. That's it. That's what we've turned the cross into. It's unnecessary. Why? Because there's no bad news. What's the bad news? There's no bad news. God isn't someone to dread. Oh, he's just this kind, benevolent God who winks at things. Really? He doesn't wink at things. So we fear him with the dread because he is judge, and we also fear him with, with reverence because he is a savior. That's the other side of it. Those are the two ways. We fear him with dread because he is a judge, even though he's not going to condemn me personally. And I, I revere him because he is a savior. He did save. He did pour out his wrath on his son on my behalf. This is marvelous. This is wonderful. This is cause for a holy awe and veneration. If you as a Christian lose that holy dread because he is judge and holy awe and reverence because he is a savior, your practical and personal life will spin out of control. Your flesh will take over. I love what the Westminster Bible Studies under Barrett said. The man who's lost his sense of awe and reverence before God, who imagines himself to be as God, knowing good and evil, is already delivered over to presumptuous sins. Because almost at once he succumbs to that form of idolatry which transfers to another the fear which should be for God alone. And how quickly he provokes the jealousy of God because he's afraid of offending someone on earth. The commandments of God are forgotten because of the urgent necessity of pleasing some human being, some employer, some husband, some wife, some servant. The young person becomes afraid of the crowd. The politician becomes afraid of the people. The minister becomes afraid of the congregation. And if they aren't afraid, it's an indication they have no fear of God before their eyes. But a man or a nation ought to fear God and be afraid to follow the leading of self-interest to a place of special privilege that denies justice and a fair field for all. A person ought to be afraid to give way to wrath, to seek vengeance, to bear a grudge against his neighbor. He ought to be afraid to indulge in obscenity, impurity, profanity, Man, beloved, we, we just let this stuff course through our homes and our practical life like it's nothing. Fear ought to restrain the Christian from spitefulness and malicious gossip. He ought to be afraid to speak anything but the truth in love. He ought to be afraid to vex the stranger sojourning in the land. He ought to be afraid to turn a deaf ear to cries of need or to shirk his proper place of leadership in church and community. Fear alone ought to prompt him to bring his offerings to the storehouse of God, end quote. It's true. So back to Luke 12, let's, let's introduce it and pick up next time. But this is absolutely marvelous what Jesus does here. If there is to be this proper fear on these two sides of it, notice that coming out of chapter 11, they were plotting against him in their secret places. And under these circumstances, chapter 12, verse 1 says, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. By the way, Luke includes that reference to the crowd 
because of what he's about to say. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. What's he saying? Hey, doesn't matter how big the crowd, if you're hanging around the Pharisees, it's going to permeate. It'll, it'll take all of you. It's just like leaven. You put a little bit in and it just starts to permeate. Hypocrisy permeates. Don't be afraid of them. Stand with Christ. Don't be afraid of the religious elite. Stand with Christ. Don't be afraid that someone can take your life. Stand with Christ. Don't let it filter out and permeate your life. Don't plant the seeds of hypocrisy. And he began to say this to his disciples. And he gives here five reasons why you should fear God. And they're all very practical in terms of what you believe and then how it implicates your life. We won't go into them, but I'll just introduce them to you. The first is, why, why should you fear God? Because he's going to uncover everything hidden. That's very practical. Whatever you say, whatever you do, whatever motivates you, whatever your thoughts are, it's all coming to light, all of it. The motives you just had right now, the thoughts you just had about the preacher, it's coming to light. <laughs> telling you, it's coming. It's all coming out. Notice what he says. There is nothing covered up, verse 2, that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. You should fear and revere God, venerate him, honor him, be in holy dread of him so that it changes your life and deters you from sin because Everything inside of you, every secret plot hatched, every thought that no one can see, every back alley room conversation you have, everything you want to portray on the outside that you are not on the inside is all coming out. The masks are coming off. Second reason, far more frightening, is that he holds the keys to hell. He holds the keys to hell. I say to you, my friends. That's very interesting. He's talking to his disciples still, those who believed him, and he calls them my friends. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, in the hyper-grace ideology, you would have expected him to say, don't fear at all. Man, just, just let go and cruise because you're not under condemnation. It's not what he says. He says, you want a motivation not to sin? Just know that God, the God of the universe, has the keys to hell, and he will put people there by their own rejection of him. He will do it. And you should know that he holds those keys. You say, well, I'm saved. Yeah, but you... You proclaim Christ and the evidence of the Holy Spirit will carry you all the way through and you cannot be lost. But how many people profess Christ and the seeds of apostasy are there and eventually they take those seeds and they just let them live and they are like the writer of Hebrews says, they're never combining knowledge with faith and in the end they depart. You say, am I supposed to lack assurance? Not if you hold fast to your confession in obedience and submission and belief and faith. And the Spirit of God himself will assure you because of the power in your life. But don't think that 10 years of professing Christ and apparent fruit means that you don't have to strive till the end to fear God and live for him. You've got to strive all the way to the end because only those who endure to the end are truly proven to be his disciples. Certainly would never want to take your genuine assurance away, but I'd sure love to see the scriptures crush any false assurance that we might have as Pharisees. Thirdly, he highly prizes his people. Why should you fear God? Because he highly prizes his people. Verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Not one of them is forgotten. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Listen, God cares about his people. He cares about them. I read that and I think, what great joy and comfort. And then I think, oh, that means he's watching over me. He's watching everything I do, everything I think. He permeates everywhere I live, every place I go, every thought I think, everything I do. And so there's this great comfort and there's this great motivation. Lord, help me grow. Help me get rid of this man that I am inside. Help me get rid of the masks. Help me to grow through this hypocrisy because you prize your people. Of course, he's 
He's using it in two ways here. He's using it as a deterrent to sin for his disciples, but also a comfort to say, look, he prizes his people. What the Pharisees want to do to you, don't, don't fear men because God is watching all of it. That leads to a fourth reason. He will uphold divine justice. He will uphold divine justice. Verse 8, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. He will be denied. There will be justice. Don't follow the Pharisees. Don't follow hypocrisy. God will deny all those. And on that day, it doesn't matter what pretense they bring, what they say about what they did, and they will not have any case in their favor that, that sort of reveals something to God he didn't know. They make a case, bring evidence that he did not know. No. You denied him. Your heart denied him. The Pharisees on the outside looked like they were the ones who were the gatekeepers of truth. And yet, in their heart of hearts, it was a denial of him while their lips spoke of him. You don't want to be that kind of hypocrite because he will uphold divine justice and he will deny you on that day. And last is even more frightening than that. He does withhold forgiveness. You want to know why you should fear God? Because he will uncover everything hidden. He holds the keys to hell. He highly prizes his people. He will uphold divine justice. And lastly, he does withhold forgiveness from rejectors. Notice verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Listen, if you like in Jesus' day, have unbelief in your heart. You deny who Christ is. I mean, their blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was the most, the most critical kind at its time because they saw him personally, saw his power personally, heard his words personally. They saw the Spirit of God working through the Son, and they still said he was satanic. You can't recover from that. But you know, there are people here in our day who have just as much denial of all the truth they've heard. They will not be forgiven for rejecting Christ. It is the only unforgivable sin to reject Christ. It is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It is. And you're without excuse, Romans 1 says, if you do not humble, become humbled at what you see around you, when you look in the mirror, you look at humanity, if you are full of pride and unbelief, you will suffer for it. And then he makes this little statement here about when you're persecuted, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, don't worry about how or what you're speaking, your defense or what you're to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. First the apostles as the example, then us as we take the word of God, we speak it. We don't become hypocrites. We don't let it permeate our life. We don't go down that road. We fear God properly and we trust the Holy Spirit with integrity. And then we'll know we are forgiven. And we'll know he's not withholding it from, from us, frighteningly. So Jesus, in this text, says, look, I want you to avoid hypocrisy. Here's how you avoid it. You know these things. You believe these principles. And we will take each one of those in the next couple of weeks, and we'll just sort of unpack it in all the practical ways you cultivate and nurture a heart of honesty and integrity, the fear of the Lord, and you take off the masks in your life practically. It's a thrill to see what the Holy Spirit will do. It's rich and exciting to see how he grows the believer. And by the way, don't become morbidly introspective as if you and I can make a clear and ultimate assessment of what's going on inside of us. You say, man, I, I feel like a hypocrite all the time, Pastor. Well, of course you are, but... It is the Spirit of God through His Word that gives you evidence that hypocrisy is beginning to fade and new and honest service of Christ is beginning to grow. Don't become morbidly introspective. Wow, I, I've got hypocrisy all over the place. That's a good thing to know, but take it to the Word, take it to Christ. If you sit around in that pity party, you're going to be in real trouble because you won't be able to see clearly. And Paul warns against making some final ultimate assessment of your heart. 
1 Corinthians 4, he just wait for the Lord to reveal the secret things in his timing. And so we're going to walk through practically these reasons why you should fear God in this proper way, and that will prevent the leaven of hypocrisy from spreading into our life or from us to other people spreading into the church. There's a reason, beloved, that that shallow ministries that do not teach the fear of God end up in utter hypocrisy as a ministry. They end up like Sardis. They have a name that they're alive, but they're dead. There's a reason. It's because they did not fear God in these proper ways. Bow with me. Lord, take those truths and let them sink in. It is but a cursory look and an introductory look, but let it sink into our lives. We are to have a proper fear of you because we understand that we're finite and dependent and must be sustained and you hold our very breath in your hands. And you do what you please in the heavens because you are the great sovereign one, the creator, self-existent. Anytime our corrupt hearts rail against that, we lack fear, a proper fear of you. And Lord, quite often, the wonderful teachings of grace have fallen upon our hearts with relief and great comfort, which has then turned into an idolatry of personal relief from guilt rather than a cleansed life. And that has given way to idolatry and wrong views of grace. We've even gotten to the place in the church, Lord, where we've denied any relationship to fearing you. No wonder there's been little deterrent to sin in those contexts where awe and reverence are not biblically defined and your cross hasn't produced fear, but sort of a flippant, casual view of grace that is a covering for sin, which we're warned against. Please forgive us. Help us to fear you. Help us to have a holy and right dread conducting ourselves in fear during our time on earth because we call you Father. You are an intimate heavenly Father to us, a parent who chastens us. We're warned to strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble or else our life will be put into a state of being lame as a chastening. We are to think carefully about a right fear of you a reverence, an awe. And may that produce in your people a right kind of dread that you are judge and a right kind of reverence because you are our Savior. All of it rooted in the reality that you poured out your wrath upon your Son for us. And so you could have judged and you would have judged and should have judged. But instead you poured out our rightful wrath upon your son. And that should incite in us a fear, a reverence, a conduct that is godly because you will judge one day. Help us to be motivated by all these great motivations and not have one outdo the other, but all of them growing so that we don't become vulnerable to Phariseeism and self-righteous pride and pretense and hypocrisy, saying one thing and just flippantly doing another. Keep us from the disease of this leaven. Give us joy and comfort in, in the work that you're doing in our lives even as we make this study. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.